Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Co-op. You know, in business, uh, there are two main ingredients. There's a lot of ingredients that you need to have a successful business, but the two main ones are capital and labor. Labor and capital. And too often, those two ingredients, those two main ingredients are at odds. There's a, a conflict. In a capitalistic society, the folks that have the capital, that owns the capital, the shareholders, normally will rent out their labor. They try to own the labor, uh, and they try to pay the labor as little as possible. And in a worker co-op, in a cooperative world, we have that the laborers own the business. They own their own labor, and then they rent capital. And today we have Cliff Rosenthal, who has spent his life on the capital side trying to get the laborers to be able to rent capital, get the laborers, the low-income communities, to get capital at a price that they can afford so that they can own their own labor. Good morning, Cliff. How are you doing, sir? Good morning, Vernon. Glad to be with you today. Thank you for taking that time out to be with us and share your story. When I read about you, this is what I see you have done. Would you agree with how I opened this up? Well, yes. Access to capital in the hands of community is absolutely fundamental. And it doesn't flow naturally. We've had to struggle for it to get it. Of course, what I found in credit unions was a, a way that uh, communities uh, could begin to control capital for their own needs without maximizing profit at the expense of labor. Yeah, that's a, that's a struggle all between labor and capital. And too often, when I got my MBA, every decision was made on what's the greatest return on investment. What's the greatest return on the capital? What what gives the person that has the capital the, the most money? Often it did not make a difference about how it affected labor. Matter of fact, you would move the plant to wherever you get the lowest labor cost or how it affected the environment. It just what was the return on investment? So you said it didn't this access to capital didn't flow natural. But you mentioned credit union. So what is a credit union? Well, basically a credit union is a financial cooperative. It's a group of people with a common bond, a connection among each other, who decide to get together, and in this country at least, to get a, a charter, either a federal charter or a state charter, to get insurance with that, and they pool their savings to loan to each other, basically to satisfy the needs that, the, that they desire, that they define for themselves, for their communities. So they pool their monies to loan to each other. They're taking their own pennies, nickels, dimes, dollars now, put those together and deposits into this institution that they own. Correct. And then they end up deciding what um, they will loan on, what kind of products they'll loan, and what interest they'll get back. Sure. Okay. So how did you get involved in credit unions? 
Well, my story really begins with a different form of co-op, namely food cooperatives. In the late 1960s, early 70s, I lived in Washington Heights, New York City, a neighborhood that's now famous for the show about that name. And um, there was another crisis that we were confronting in that time, and it was world hunger. And I began to learn about how uh, basically uh, the large corporations control the food supply and resulted in higher prices. So I learned about food co-ops. And in my spare time, while I was a graduate student, I began to organize a neighborhood food co-op. And after I moved from New York, I organized a couple more as well. So uh, really, this was my, my uh, driving passion throughout the 1970s. I supported myself for a part of that time by translating a Russian encyclopedia as a freelancer. Then I actually got a job organizing food co-ops. And finally, uh, I was working for a migrant and seasonal farm worker organization in the late 1970s. And my boss said, we really need a credit union to serve our communities, our, our farm worker organizations and our communities. And like most of Americans, I didn't know what a credit union was. Hold on one second. You know, Hold on one second before sure. you go. I got it. But you're you're in. Where were you working with the farmers? You said you're working with farm workers. It was a national advocacy organization for uh, for migrant and seasonal farm workers based in Washington. So you're based in Washington D.C. working with farm. But I saw somewhere where you developed food co-ops for uh, migrant farm workers and uh, Native Americans. Yeah. Before that, my first my first quote real job was working for American Indians for Development in uh, in Connecticut, organizing a food co-op for uh, for their constituents. These were mostly urban folks, so there were a couple of reservations in Connecticut. But that was really the first time that I organized co-ops for you know, uh, and anyone was paying me to do it. Before that, I'd simply done it as a volunteer. Okay. So then I took my expertise to Washington and worked for that. Farm worker organization. So you're in D.C. now in the 70s. You're working for this farmer group, and your boss says, we want a credit union. Yeah. There are these things called credit unions, and we think that we can organize one and, and better serve uh, uh, our constituents, our organizations, and the farm workers they serve. So I learned all about credit unions, and, and Vernon, honestly, I simply fell in love with this concept of a credit union as a, as a, as a co-op it's a money co-op, pure and simple. It's a money co-op, financial cooperative. So have you heard of SUSUs? I sure have. So, yeah, um, SUSUs are one of the many uh, informal ways that people have to loan to each other. I've heard it uh, mostly in connection with, uh, with immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean here in Brooklyn. So um, it's very popular here in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. So I had a guest on last week, or I think it was just last week, where he said that I asked him when was the first time he was in a SUSU, or he was from Trinidad. He said elementary school, they were saving. They had they had SUSUs yeah. in elementary school. They started saving, uh, and the SUSUs is what he said he got his money for to buy his plane ticket to come to the U.S. to go to college. Uh, oh. So, yeah, they're very informal, but he said he had more trust in the SUSU People pooling their money, just like with a credit union. Okay, so the credit union seems like it's a natural fallout of a SUSU. A next step to make a SUSU formal would be to form a credit union or join a credit union. Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of people, in, in, again, my, my view is shaped largely from living in Brooklyn, which has 
some of the largest com uh, immigrant communities anywhere, both from the Caribbean and in, in, in Africa. And people who have experience with SUSUs, you know, do sometimes look to start uh, to start credit unions. Okay, so you're in the 70s now, and in the farm workers, your boss says to you, we want to start a credit union, and our farm workers and all of these organizations would benefit from it. So where did you go to find out about them? There was a gentleman in, in Washington by the name of Floyd Augustinelli who worked for an organization that, uh, that uh, did work with credit unions at the time. So we had to educate ourselves. He told us about credit unions and the basic structure of them and how you had to deal with regulators and how you had to set your policies and so forth. So it was a real and quite exciting education for me how these, uh, how these uh, credit unions worked. I like it when you said you fell in love with this because I was okay. here in D.C. working with um, limited equity housing co-ops and yeah. fell in love with them because of the way that the people, everyday people, made decisions. They learned how to make really informed decisions and in running a business. And you fell in love with this credit union of how you can get money to the low-income communities, farm workers or whomever else. Correct. Yeah. So where did you go from there? Well, um, then I ended my uh, weekend commuting route back and forth. My, my wife-to-be was living in Brooklyn. I was living in Washington, and we decided that uh, we, uh, we couldn't pay, pay those airfares anymore. So uh, I moved back to Brooklyn, and as it turned out, we lived um, – I will say, uh, by the way, that um, my wife lived, lived in a communal house, so I was joining a communal house, a, a little urban commune. And about a mile from our house, it turned out there was a national organization of these credit unions, of community development credit unions. And I thought this would be the absolute perfect way to, to marry what was, uh, you know, my, my, my interest, my dominant interests uh, with, uh, with my living situation. And I hung around for about six months. I volunteered. And finally, they offered me a job. And that was, that was it. And for 32 years... I worked for the National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions, which is now known as Inclusive, which captures what we were about. National Federation of Community Development Credit Unions. That's a mouthful. Okay. It, it was. And now it's Inclusive without an E. Correct. That's their branding. Okay. Um, so you love your wife-to-be who was in Brooklyn, so you moved back to Brooklyn. You lived in a commune. A communal housing situation she did so that a communal housing is that everybody in that commune owns the house and you have policies of how it runs or did you rent the house yeah yeah basically you know people contributed a certain amount for expenses so we shared all expenses we shared child care uh we shared chores we shared maintenance for the house you as a housing co-op person uh, understand it was this was very small scale this was you know what had been a two-family house that three families were living in and so forth, but uh, it's basically a pretty similar principles. Fantastic. Um, as a senior person now, I would not mind finding a communal house to live in, um, both for particularly with yeah. COVID, just being able to talk to people uh, mm -hmm. and then sharing the mm -hmm. load. Okay, so your wife is in Brooklyn, you move back and you're are a block or so away from community development credit unions, the National Federation of Volunteer there, and then you got a job, and you were there for 30-some years. 32 years, yeah. Yeah. 
And what were you? I thought it was going to be a smooth sailing, but the, the organizations that have, at first was federally funded, and then under the Reagan administration, we lost all of our funding. Everybody left. So uh, I basically took it on without salary for a while till we could start rebuilding. Wow. And so you were there by yourself? I was very fortunate that I got a fellowship, a mid-career fellowship. And Vernon, I was not trained in business like you. My, my training was as a Russian historian. But here I became involved in cooperatives and credit unions, and I realized I needed to know something about finance. So I was very fortunate to get a, a fellowship that, you know, taught me a little bit about financial institutions. And I was especially fortunate that I was able to hire a woman to be my associate. Her name was Annie Vamper. She was an African-American woman from the Southeast who had managed credit unions and who had worked for the regulatory agency. And, you know, um, she came to uh, to work with me. And in, for much of the 1980s, it was the two of us. It was the the, uh, the Cliff and Annie, the Annie and Cliff show. <laughs> okay. Sometimes okay. they call us the odd couple. <laughs> okay. okay. The Annie and Cliff show. Annie being African-American and you are... I assume a Russian? Well, you know, <laughs> white male ancestors of whom uh, were uh, basically uh, driven out of uh, the area controlled by uh, Russia because, uh, because they were Jewish. All right. We have to take our first break, and we have the Annie and Cliff show. Uh, a white male Jewish run out of Russia and Annie out of the Southeast who had worked and for credit unions, run credit unions, and had worked for the regulators, so she knew all about that. And you had to go back and learn about business and finance. <laughs> That's okay. right. Because you're a historian. That's a wonderful, wonderful background to merge together to figure out what to do. Listen, everybody, we'll be right back to Cliff to look at the rest of his life and how he helped to get capital for these co-ops. We'll be right back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Mr. Cliff Rosenthal on with us this morning. And Cliff has spent his life working in the cooperative world, helping communities get capital. And what we were talking about right before the break was that Cliff was federally funded community development credit unions or and they lost their funding under the Reagan administration. Uh, he took away a lot of money for a lot of different programs. He sure did. Um, and so you're by yourself, got some money, and hired Annie, who came in to help, and you went out and got some knowledge about this. So it's just the two of you, and with your background being Jewish and kicked out of Russia, I guess you had a heart for helping people that were down and out. You'd, you'd experienced that. Yes, and I didn't experience discrimination directly and so forth, but, you know, somehow I think that you're right. And this was my ancestors, really my grandparents and my, my parents to some degree. We had a sense that, uh, that we were outside of the, uh, the mainstream and that we had to really struggle to, uh, to, be, uh, to be part of, a, of, of America. So through, throughout the um, civil rights world uh, in the 60s and the 70s, Jewish people, rabbis, really 
coalesce with Martin Luther King and have, and even today because of that same sense of that history, which I think is is really good. I'm sorry for the history that people are discriminated against, but either because of their religion or because of the color of their skin or or whatever reason in terms of um, women because of their gender. So the discrimination, whatever it is, if we could if we could get all people together that have been discriminated against in this world, we could we could really create a, uh, mm. a country for the people. Yes. Okay. So where did you go from there? You you were in you're in Brooklyn and with Annie. I, I know you stayed in Brooklyn. Did you stay in the commune or did you buy a buy a brownstone or something? Where where did you go well, with family? Well, the communal house um, lasted for a number of years and then uh, then it sort of decommunalized but became a two unit housing cooperative. And I stayed here and I've lived here uh lived here ever since. Okay. Uh, in, in Brooklyn, yes. Mhm. Have any children? I have a daughter with my wife and a stepson who's out in California. Okay. Grandchildren? Just one. Just my little three-year-old, who, as you and I speak, is downstairs uh, with uh, with my wife. Okay. And we're very fortunate at this time of COVID that we were able to see her. That is fantastic. A big smile on your face when you talk about that. <laughs> big smile. A, she taught me how to smile even in these difficult times. Yeah, you're very fortunate to be able to see them and be that close to her. So you've written a book, okay, it's called Democratizing Finance, Origins of the Community Development Financial Institutions. What's a community development financial institution? Well, through the uh, the 1980s, you had credit unions, you had banks and so forth, and they didn't really have any special name. Uh, ours were community development credit unions. That had always been our name. Uh, there was a community development bank, South Shore Bank, and so forth. But basically, in the late 1980s, we came off of an era that uh, that redlining still existed, that people are of color and communities of color were still being denied access to credit and banking services. So uh, I and other folks that we worked with were trying to find alternatives. Uh, we know we couldn't take over the whole banking system. We weren't that ambitious. Um, but we tried to organize alternatives, both credit unions and low-income communities, and these other entities called community development loan funds, which were nonprofit lenders as well. We formed a coalition together, and what we realized is in terms of accessing capital, we needed a lot more money than we could put together just by uh, we pooled money in our communities. So I particularly put forth this platform of trying to get um, federal investment in these institutions, which we began calling community development financial institutions. They were credit unions, they were loan funds, they were venture funds, they were micro lenders, and so forth. And lo and behold, Bill Clinton, who was aware of community development bank, South Shore Community Development Bank, became enamored with this idea and campaigned for a platform of creating a fund to provide capital to 100 community development banks and 1,000 microenterprise loan programs. So basically, we joined our ideas with him. Legislation was passed in 1994, and a fund was created that has made a huge difference in providing capital to these communities. So if you just take a look at Reagan versus Clinton, 
okay, in terms of what government can do to help people uh, or hurt people in terms of Reagan taking money out of social programs, out of banking for for communities, and then Bill Clinton coming in, putting money in. Uh, So before the 1990s, there was no community development finance institutions. But then you all put these together. You got federal money to help with the pooled money that the communities brought That's together. Right. That's right. To leverage that money. So there was a guy named Papa Sin who was on the show. He's from Senegal, and he helped to create co-ops there. And he said that you anticipate getting money from – when you pay taxes, you, you're, you're anticipating what you can get government to help fund. I never thought about taxes that way. It was always a pain to me. But when we put money into the government, then we can look to the government to help us to fund those things that we need done. In this case, was how can we get our cash? How can we get capital? And that's the, that's the federal money. But we put that money in yes. as, as society, and then we can help regulate where that money goes, which helps the community. I'm glad Bill liked that. I'm glad you all uh, you know, push push that, worked with that, got it politically uh, accepted. So tell me what happened then, because you're still working with what is now called inclusive. So are you still developing co-ops around the U.S.? Yes. Um, so we uh, helped organize new credit unions, one which I sometimes describe as my second born because it's closest to my heart. In, uh, in 1984, this group of community activists on New York City's Lower East Side came to us to help start a credit union. So Annie and I worked with them to organize that. It was started on May 1st, May Day, 1986, on the Lower East Side in a building that had been turned over to them by a big bank in recognition of their Community Reinvestment Act responsibilities. And... Uh, I can't take credit for it, uh, except to uh, my early role. This credit union has grown from literally nothing to today being an $80 million in asset institution serving low-income New York. What's the name of it? In the 80s, Annie and I uh, organized credit unions. I made the case for it. I raised money for it. Annie told them actually how how you ran these businesses, you know, what the operations were, what the regulations were, and so forth. And we worked uh, in New York. Uh, we worked in Chicago. We worked in South Central Los Angeles, where we worked to start a credit union on the eve of the riots of 1992. And we could not get that credit union started because the regulators were being a little obstructive until the riots after the acquittal of the officers who attacked Rodney King. That brought back to the government the urgency of providing people in South Central the means to, to to serve their communities. So what was the name of the credit union in the Lower East Side? Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union. People. People first. Absolutely. Planet second, profit third. That's what the credit <laughs> union is all about. People, people, people first, the planet second, the environment, and then, and then profit. You have to have profit now. If you run a business, right. you've got to have surplus. it. But you may call it surplus, but it's profit, yes. Yes, yeah, surplus or profit. And unfortunately, in a capitalistic society, in a capitalistic business, is three Ps also. It's profit first, profit second, and profit third. Okay, that's the, the main run. So uh, you were in South Central Chicago and in 
in uh, New York. And it's unfortunate about Rodney King, just like with George Floyd, it sort of wakens yes. us up. Yes, it that was a wake-up call. Yeah. I know, and it's a sad thing that crises like this are required sometimes to focus the attention of the, of the people with power in this country on the needs of the communities that we serve. Well, not only people of power, but in both cases, the the the, the world uh, blew up. I mean, in, in most of, in George Floyd, there was people protesting all yes. over the world. Yes. Okay, and all over the U.S., people protesting. It sort of just wakes up people to wake up those people of power, those people in politics, yes. and everybody get to see those awful, awful things. Okay, you you you're creating co-ops. In, in California in the West, in New York, in the Northeast, and in the Midwest, in Chicago. You are helping people to pool their limited resources to come together with federal funds to get more and more capital in communities to solve community problems. That's the other thing that Papa Sin said, co-op solve community problems. And that's your second love after your wife. <laughs> Maybe third after your wife and your daughter. But I got it. Listen, everybody, we'll be right back uh, and we'll talk more about what Cliff has done to help create co-ops and these funds for the communities. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Co-op. And, you know, National Cooperative Bank has sponsored us for the last eight years, eight-plus years we've been on the air. And National Co-op Bank, uh, who was created to help uh, fund these organizations, credit unions, and support their members through providing financial um, products, innovative financial products. And they've done a great job, and they've been a wonderful partner. Cliff, um, in your book, Democratizing Finance, Origins of Community Development, Financial Institutions Movement, you start off with Benjamin Franklin, go all the way through the Freedmen's Bank and all the way to today. Why did you start with Benjamin Franklin? I know you're a historian. That's your, that's your yeah. backdrop. Yeah. Um, there are not many uh, um, sort of basic uh, themes about finance that most people will know. Uh, probably it's as basic as a penny uh, saved is a penny earned and so forth. Uh, somehow I found that, uh, you know, that he was uh, interested in lending. I read a little bit of the biography of, of, of Franklin and found out that he basically what would be described almost as a, as a micro fund today. He's sort of the, the grandfather of it. You know, he'd uh, loaned it. First of all, he came out of poverty and he recognizes the difficulty of, of getting capital if you start with nothing. So he left a substantial amount of money. Uh, particularly in Philadelphia and Boston, to establish these funds. And I thought, wow, this seems very similar to what people have been doing today. And a lot of elements of credit unions in it because they were sort of peer pressure. You have co-signers and so forth. And um, he's increasingly being recognized uh, as this, uh, obviously this, uh, this genius with hands in many fields, but uh, also in finance as well. I mean, had to start somewhere, Vernon, and the fact that the need for finance, the need to access capital is so fundamental that in every age and in every group, 
um, people will be searching for alternatives because the commercial banking system, as you well, well know, was never designed to serve people without very much money. It's not what the business model is about, and it hasn't served them. So the banks are interested in um, three things also. They're interested in getting their money back. One, two is yeah. getting their money Fair back, enough. and three is getting their money back. So they, they end up loaning money to people who already have uh, assets that already have cash or land or a business. And then if you go to a, well, in, in, yeah. in the U.S., a black family has 10% of the wealth of a white family. So this was before COVID. It may be worse than that now. Yeah. Um, so don't have assets in the black communities and in, in brown communities, native communities. So banks wouldn't loan to us. Okay, just it's really just that simple. So we needed other alternatives. So we had to pool our money, whether it's SUSUs or credit unions. We had to pool our right. money to to take care of whether it's borrowing people with mutual aid societies. Yeah, we had to do that ourselves. And I like co-ops the first principle the first value is self-help self-help by working with others which is wonderful yeah okay so what is this freeman what was the freeman's bank all about well toward the end of the civil war as it became uh clear that the north was going to finally win you had many black soldiers who were fighting and they were uh to earn money but no place to put it so uh, some uh, philanthropists and abolitionists got together and went to Congress to uh, to establish an institution in which black uh, former soldiers could uh, place the place their money, and it actually grew phenomenally well. It was not, and this was crucial. It was not backed by what we call the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. It was confusing. It was chartered by Congress, but the money was not guaranteed. Went along great for a few years. But then the trustees of the bank, who were primarily well-to-do uh, white men, um, began to use the bank um, for purposes such as speculation and real estate deals. That was compounded by an economic crisis in 1873. So uh, the bank was in dire straits, and they reached out to Frederick Douglass to come in and try to save it. And sadly, by that time, as Frederick Douglass and his in his one of his autobiographies put it, I was married to a corpse. There was no money left, and the bank was on its way to to, uh, to dissolution. And so people, those soldiers, those blacks, they lost their money because it wasn't guaranteed by the U.S.? Or? It was not guaranteed. Some were able to reclaim the money, and some, very sadly, were not able to demonstrate their ownership, and they literally petitioned the Congress for decades into the 20th century to get those those modest savings back, and not all of them were able to do that. So um, it's it's ultimately, to me, a rather sad and tragic story of well-intentioned people and well-intentioned project that went that went astray. Without the government either watching over it, evaluating it, and definitely not guaranteeing it. Maybe if they had guaranteed that money, they'd have watched over those investments a lot better. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. What's the major thing that would you say would cause a credit union to be successful? Well, ultimately, you have to. Uh, it, it has to be capital, and it has to be a lending market. That's the other thing. You could you could gather ten million, twenty million dollars worth of deposits, but the may, the way that a credit union makes money is loaning the money out within the community. 
um, they charge a little bit more than uh, than it costs them to bring in the deposits, and they live off the earnings uh, from those loans and from it from investments. So that's the thing. You've got to have a group of people in a in a community or an association who have some common bond uh, together. You have to identify folks who have a need for a need for capital. Uh, billionaires don't need a credit union; they have plenty of access to capital. But you need to uh, be identifying a community or group of people who, who who will borrow, who need to borrow, and who have the capacity to repay it. Those are the, ele- the 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 key elements. If you can do that, you can ultimately make it work. If you if as in a low income community, you have access to an infusion of outside capital you can accelerate the process enormously and reach self-sufficiency a lot faster. Otherwise, it can be a long struggle. Okay. So a credit union is in the business of loaning money, just like yes. banks are. That's what I hear yep. you say. Okay. True. And that's why I couldn't always understand why they wouldn't loan the blacks if you're in the business of loaning money, but if you just struggle with can they pay it back and can I charge more money how much money can I charge for this money? A credit union, what I, that I found very interesting, what you said was they just try to charge money to help pay for their expenses. They don't have to gouge the customer that, okay, to make usury fees or anything. Right. So you, you can get up an interest rate lower than perhaps with the banks and other places in a credit union. Yeah, you can. Uh, it's not for free. The credit union is not in the business of of, of granting money uh, or loaning money for free. It's got to meet its expenses. So that's, you know, that's the challenge of it, but it's also the power of it. If you develop your business and your business model such as it brings in enough income, uh, you can be self-sufficient. You own your own financial institution. It pays for itself. You make decisions about your lending policies and so forth. And that's what I fell in love with, the notion of empowering people to make those sorts of financial decisions that affect their lives. Wonderful. Wonderful. with me on that. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Empowering people to make decisions about their financial lives, empowering people to make decisions about where they live and how they live, and empowering people to have worker co-ops so that they can uh, control their labor and, and their profits. Yeah, that's the love for co-ops. I got bitten by that bug. So inclusive, um, how many co-ops are in inclusive? Inclusive now uh, has more than 400 member credit unions. The credit union industry altogether has about 5,000 institutions. Both credit unions and banks, by the way, both of those industries have shrunk over the last 30 years. There used to be 10, 15, 20,000 banks, 10, 15, 20,000 credit unions. Now there are about 5,000 credit unions and 5,000 banks. And among those credit unions, more than 400 are members of Inclusive. And those are the credit unions that have a specific targeted mission of serving of low to moderate in communities and communities that have been excluded from mainstream finance. So what's some of the products that, that Credit Unions Inclusive had that helps the community? Well, most any credit union, certainly uh, within inclusive, will uh, will provide loans for for vehicles, and we're not just talking about new cars, which, as you know, have gotten quite expensive, but but used cars that may not have a, you know a high value and would be a 
very expensive to finance from a bank. So, you know, they, they do uh, unsecured loans. They do loans for used cars, for new cars. They also loan to um, small and minority businesses in their communities. And that became especially valuable during the uh, COVID crisis. You may be familiar with the PPP program, which wasn't your PPPs, but the payroll protection program. Uh, and credit unions and CDFI credit unions specifically played a major role in providing loans to those small, uh, small uh, entrepreneurs and neighborhood businesses that weren't being served by the banks even during the crisis. They also loan for housing purposes. And, you know, again, my second born, my, my favorite, the Lower East Side People's Federal Credit Union, um, loans to, uh, to self-help housing and uh, to limited equity co-ops, as well as for shares, too. So we're particularly proud of that. So for anybody out there, a share loan is like a mortgage for a mortgage for a condo, a share loan for a cooperative. They they very much Correct. look the same, but the share loan is for a share of stock, which is personal property, and the, the uh, mortgage is for a deed. So they're very, very similar. They do the same kinds of things. So the sixth principle of cooperation is cooperation among co-ops. Do you find like these 400 inclusive 400 plus inclusive do they work together or do these larger and smaller co-ops do they work together yeah increasingly they are and that's been especially true in the crisis it's been thanks to the outreach that inclusive has done for sure but what has been very gratifying again i've been in this field for you know 30 to 40 years you know on that the message and the mission that community development credit unions have always had in terms of you know serving excluded populations and low-income populations, is more and more being adopted by some of the very big substantial credit unions as well, uh, and uh, they're providing a lot of men- momentum, a lot of uh, financial muscle in terms of uh, working uh, working together. They've been helping in situations such as uh, in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, and so forth. And I do see, and 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 I know that you've been a a, a real advocate for the co-op principles that cooperation among co-ops is very important and it's expanding. Fantastic. So you said that payroll protection program, they've come out and helped a lot. So as banks have been going down, you said there was 10 to 15,000 credit unions, 10 to 15,000 banks. Has that affected black banks and co-ops yeah. that, that yeah. credit unions that work for black yeah. Distressingly so that we have both among black owned banks and uh, primarily black credians, the numbers have decreased very substantially over the last 20 to 30 years. I think the number of black banks has declined from about 40 plus to, to about 20 in recent years. Okay, so less than half of them. Okay, so we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about the credit unions and your experience, but I really want to talk about the future. What do you see the future for that three-year-old grandchild uh, and, and with the role that co-ops can play coming out of COVID-19? We talked about racism, which is I find as a pandemic. Uh, we have the climate change, which I have as another pandemic. How can co-ops help, particularly credit unions? But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk Station. 
Information is power. That's why WOL ends up being a great partner. We're giving you information about co-ops, so you can either go start one, go find one, join one, so you can help improve your community. If there's a community problem, co-ops is a way of solving that problem. And right now we're talking about creating the capital to solve those community problems through co-ops and CDFIs. So what do you see the future for co-ops or how can we come out of this, out of these pandemics better? You can take either one of them, COVID, racism, climate change. (laughs) Oh, well, and then as you know, the intersectionality of of all it, of all those, those crises uh, makes, makes solving it uh, more difficult. I think that there has been a real breakthrough in consciousness in several levels over the last couple of years. A painful one, resulting, you know, from from the uh, the, the crises, uh, uh, like you know, the, the the murder of George Floyd and so forth. But there has been a kind of broad awakening to the issues that now we see in growing discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI. It's become sort of the watchword. In many parts of, of society, it's certainly been true among credit unions, which we've seen a much heightened engagement in those issues and a much heightened awareness of income inequality and, the, you know, the ways that, that even credit unions, even cooperatives have not done what they, what we, you know, might have done in terms of breaking down those barriers. So I think that, you know, I've been very encouraged by, well, uh, let's put it this way, uh, let's follow the money. Mm-hmm. Congress invested $12 billion in community development financial institutions and minority, and minority banks in the last year and a half. It goes so far beyond what I ever dreamed was possible in terms of accessing capital flows in the United States. So I think that it's going to lift many of the boats that we care about, most, both among our community development credit unions and among minority banks as well. I hope that it's going to be sustainable. I hope that it will continue and so forth. We see that uh, institutions like our credit unions moving into areas like alternative energy. I was really privileged a few years ago to help charter something called the Clean Energy Credit Union, which provides financing for solar, for, for solar panels, for electric vehicles, and so forth. And this idea is spreading among credit unions also. So we're not the whole answer by any means. But, you know, I think as relatively small financial institutions, credit unions have the flexibility and um, the agility to move to meet crises as they're emerging, which unfortunately they will continue. Crises will continue. And I like this agility piece. Uh, because it's owned by the community, the members in the community, people that make the deposits own the credit unions. They elect a board of directors. That board of director controls the credit union. Yeah. They make the policies, decisions. They hire management. Management bring them different ideas of what to do, how to do it, how to make sure you meet your expenses, maybe make a little, have a little surplus, but therefore you can give great terms to the owners. That's who makes the loans. It's wonderful. How can people find out about this clean energy credit union? Is that in a particular state or? Well, it's actually national. And uh, I uh, I Google um, clean energy federal credit union. 
uh, and that should take you to the uh, to the to the website. Okay, go to Clean Energy Federal Credit Union. Google Clean it. Energy. Yeah. Okay. It's based in Colorado, but they've got members around the uh, around the country. So, you had mentioned that 2012 was the year of cooperative. The UN had declared a year of yeah. cooperative. So you had pulled together some folks in 2011. What was that about? Well, that was basically in anticipation of the UN uh, year of, of cooperatives. Uh, so that October, uh, I, I basically put the call out to try to get to every cooperative sector I knew in New York City to, to begin to, to work together. And uh, we made some starts then. Unfortunately, uh, I went off to Washington to work for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but the uh, the torch was picked up, and and uh, the Cooperative Economics Alliance of New York City, we call it CENIC, C-E-A-N-Y-C, uh, was formed and continues to result in trying to build the bridges between the different cooperative sectors, credit unions, housing cooperatives, worker cooperatives, uh, and, and, and so forth, food cooperatives. So I may have been at that meeting. It would have been great. Uh, because at the UN, uh, there was about 150 cooperators, and I was represented at National yeah. uh, Association of Housing Co-ops. And yeah. I, we went from the meeting at the UN over to that. And I think that may be the same meeting. But I recall that there was a politician there, a lady, who got up and said that before she runs any election, she goes and find out what the co-ops are about. And I'm going, that would be nice if it happened all over the U.S., that if the politicians really knew about co-ops. Yeah. So, well, I will tell you briefly that the, that the newly elected Manhattan borough president is a gentleman by the name of Mark Levine, who we worked with to start a credit union in Washington Heights that has really flourished. So, yeah, the message is getting out there. Fantastic. I've had it that cooperators vote more than perhaps the general public because they understand <laughs> voting. And they run for school boards or city council. Has that been your experience also? Uh, yeah, I've met some folks like that who've been state uh, state uh, representatives and, and so forth and city council members, for sure. Uh, I don't know how widespread it is, but it, it's very notable when it happens. So how can people get your book? Well, uh, one easy way is to go to www.cliffrosenthal.com. And that will uh, that be basically a portal to any of the uh, online booksellers, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Friesen, which is my publisher, and Google. Uh, and that's an easy way to choose whichever one you you like, uh, or go to your local independent bookstore and ask them to order it. Democratizing finance. What does that mean? That means getting access to uh, to credit and and financial services through things like credit unions, nonprofit loan funds, even community venture community development venture capital funds as as well. These institutions were not widely known, or sometimes didn't exist before the before uh, the last thirty years. They're growing, and they provide access to people who didn't have it before. And that's why I call it democratizing finance. What um, what do you see for the future, Cliff? I mean, we got to get out of this COVID, or maybe we just have to learn how to live with it. Uh, what do you see for the future? Well, I see that we need to 
basically amplify the message a great deal. Something like 150 million people are members of credit unions, Vernon, and more and more people know that credit unions offer a good deal. But do they know uh, about the cooperative essence of credit unions and that there's a different way of organizing the finances of a society? We've still got some work to do. So what I hope is that this upsurge of interest in that kind of in our kind of work will be accompanied by education as well about the cooperative nature of, of what we're about. So that's the fifth principle of cooperation, which was my first yeah. love, um, and that's education, training, and information. My second love was the first principle. It's open to everybody, regardless of race or religion or political or gender or anything else. It's just open. If you want to join a co-op, you can. But this education, amplifying the message, I got that. That's why we have this radio show, and that's why NCB sponsors it, to amplify the message about co-ops. How do you see or do you see a way that these credit unions can help to amplify the message more? We've got the largest number of cooperators in the world, I believe, in the U.S. are in credit unions, this 150 million people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, increasingly you see the, the, some of the largest ones advertising. Um, I would really love to see literally the word, you know, it's a cooperative you know, front and center on that. You know, it's great to advertise all the cheaper rates and so forth and how we're friendly and we're not banks. I think that's great. But I really want to see the, the words cooperative uh, just uh, messaged much more broadly. We've got a lot more work to do in that. And why cooperatives are better. What's the yeah. benefits of cooperation? Yes. Yeah. Last message, would you want to leave people with? Well, you know, we're all suffering in this in this pandemic. We're not all suffering equally, as you know, that uh, that certain communities and certainly communities of color bear a disproportionate burden and suffering You know, from this. We will in the end get through it. We will get the, in the end get through it. And um, I think that there will be a kind of surge of energy to to rebuild and build new. Uh, in, 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 the, in the months and the years to, to come. And, and credit unions are well positioned and, uh, to, take a, to take advantage of it. And they should define themselves in those terms. We, you know, we got a long history, but we can have a long future as well. So everybody out there, uh, Cliff is also saying, figure out where your credit union is, join a credit union, you have a more say, you can help save money, you can help our communities strive and succeed. Cliff, thank you for taking out the time to being with us today. I really appreciate your message, your book, everything that you've done in your life. And everybody else out there, uh, we'll see you next Thursday. The next month is um, Black History Month, and we'll have a program for you for there. Please live cooperatively. Thank you, Vernon. <laughs>